Hi, welcome to Everyday Wild. I'm Daniel Havey. I'm Angervain McLaughlin. Today we're going to hear a beautiful interview uh, with Eric, who's going to talk a little bit about his memory of encountering what I think he calls a nature spirit, or is that my words? Um, a non-physical entity, I know he uses that term, and, and it's hard to find the right terms for these folks sometimes. But his his recollection is quite moving and, and fascinating. Um, and then he shares another story about another similar encounter with quite a different entity, I guess. Um, and which quite is, a contrast in yeah, the two. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, and he, he sort of really unpacks actually how he gets into the space to apprehend or become aware of these entities and that's quite instructive and and interesting to listen to in itself. I think we've all got memories of going to quiet places and settling and and then becoming aware of things in a particular way and he's kind of really cultivated that in a beautiful way and as a result has had these encounters that I think we can really kind of learn from or at the very least find interesting. Anyway, let's have a listen and uh, we'll be back for a brief chat afterwards. Um, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about your experience with what you might call a nature spirit. Okay. Well, it's primarily uh, connected to uh, time spent in nature uh-huh. and what I would have just called exploring the, the countryside that I lived in. And where was that? South of Scotland. The south of Scotland. Very south in the... There's a whole story, also a whole hour of talking just about the landscape in itself, but enough to say that um, it's quite good farmland, so there's lots of clearance of trees. It's like 2% of natural woodland left in the area, okay. most of which is in steep gullies, around streams or rivers, uh-huh. or on rocky outcrops, which weren't good for farming. Yeah. But these um, areas are isolated from one another. This is important, actually, because this nature spirit I saw in two different um, areas, which yep. were not connected by, actually connected by forest. But the forest that's in these in these areas, which I've made a, set out to explore them, um, you can see them through the landscape when you're journeying in a vehicle. There's a patch of forest, there's a patch of forest, there's a bit of river gully there. I'm going to have to go and explore that yeah. at a later stage. Um, so I made a point of connect of trying to visit all these different areas, partly just out of curiosity for mm. the landscape and um, the partly out of curiosity for the nature that might be there, plants, animals, um, and the waterways themselves, um, and any rocky outcrops, just you know to connect. The more you explore, the more you know your land. Yeah, well, feel free to mention anything that struck you, you know, when you were exploring in those mm. places. There's lots of um, lots of different things which might be um, um, relevant, um, but nonetheless, uh, time sitting still is is something which I would always try and do. Whether it was just intuitively sit still in this place, or maybe they'd see a, a nature encounter, a creature which I would want to observe, or 
hide from mm -hmm. or sometimes it was intentionally to sit down for a snack sometimes I would be out for six or seven hours walking all day stop for a lunch break sit kind of thing and then and then move on um, so on one of these particular um, days I don't even really know where I was anymore although my mind has because it's I was 26 maybe mm. so this nah, is 20 I think it might have been 28 possibly at that point when I first encountered this um, this um, being um, so we're talking about the 1990s sorry uh, yeah well I guess no nah, no nah, be, be like 2002 maybe 2000 because I remember I was somewhere when the Twin Towers bomb happened and it was after that yeah okay because I was living with a girl in the north of England then and, and um, then I moved back to the south of Scotland it's only a few miles difference but <laughs> it was at that point that um, I was doing lots of walking cleansing and, and exploring so yeah 2002 maybe let's go for that yep. approximately um but i'm not even sure where where it was specifically that i first encountered this 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 this, this being mm. um and i had had lots of encounters previously but um i'd always managed to rationalize them away with um the scientific mind saying like I see something out of the corner of my eye, a flash, a movement, mm -hmm. a black shape, a white shape, a scuttling, running thing, high on the ground, low on the ground, sort of high in the air, but always in the sort of, maybe just for the sake of argument, 15% of my peripheral vision, just, yeah. before it, just before it pans out of view in my peripheral vision, like um, a flash, like a bird flying past or something, and I would turn consciously to look at it and there's nothing there so oh there's nothing there it must have been nothing that's right maybe a shadow of a bird maybe a falling leaf maybe a mouse in the bushes who knows what but there's nothing there now so i didn't see it mm. but um in the sort of maybe in the in the five or six or seven years previous to this particular day and subsequently i've seen lots of things as well um i had been learning to uh, accept these sightings as an attempt by an external being to make itself known to me mm -hmm. whether it was well if it's making itself known to me then it's a conscious effort on its behalf mm -hmm. but it may have been an accidental thing that um yes yeah. that, that a being has has come into my space if i was sitting but nonetheless i started to uh, a cat being has just come into our space Hello, so. <laughs> um yeah that's great timing Mimi. well done i had um learned to accept these things as uh, as as real yeah and had learned to not turn my head to check them out i'd learned just to accept its presence acknowledge its presence with a hello spirit this was my standard line hello spirit i see you okay and that would be all and if i did that then sometimes not always my mind um would be um treated to a visual oh, okay a visual internal um yep vision or some vision and um, words, but not if if there was nobody else there, they wouldn't hear anything. It was all it's all yeah, a, yeah. as a picture, and the picture is translatable into words, mm -hmm. and from those words, I can understand what I've seen. Um, but that 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 took me a significant amount of time to to um, accept as real, in inverted commas, mm. doing that finger thing, <laughs> um, in inverted commas, but. I had learned to accept that these were real and um, 
and this is something that we were talking about earlier that I wanted to make a point of saying, is that uh, the redefining of what it is to actually see something. Yes. Um, you know, you know, I'm going leopard spotting. I can see a leopard in the mountains over there. There's a photograph of it. It was real. And that's true. That is real. But there's also other types of real as well. And this is something which is very important to me. Um, to yeah. redefine what it is to see something. Yeah. So I did see something out the corner of my eye on this particular day. Yeah. Um, we have a real preference for... Uh, optocentrism is that a word well well, yeah let's make it a word (laughs) yeah so you know if we extend the idea of senses to include more subjective senses or ways of sensing Mm. um and sometimes you might say intersubjective i had my own experience with a a horse recently which i told you about i think and and i mentioned another podcast and you know and I realized afterwards that I was ranking that much lower in terms of how I might frame that as real because I heard it rather than saw it. Okay. And there's no reason actually why we should do that. No. So this is like an obsession with the, 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 the vision being responsible for determining uh, truth or not. That's right. It would and be interesting to, 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 um, to canvas a, um, a section of the community who are non-seeing and see and and to determine how they might perceive the the um, the metaphysical dimension, because it wouldn't be through their eyes. No, that's a really good point. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd love to hear about people's experiences with that. And and I suppose you know we have our own experience of that when we close our eyes at night or when we're meditating on that kind of thing, and to some extent we're then tapping into a different way of seeing potentially, mm. um, which is. Perhaps what you were doing when you were in the forest, and yeah, well, not consciously, certainly, but um, nonetheless, I had learned to um, to um, see, uh, accept these disturbances in the in my experience as, mm. as the presence of something, mm. and um, to get back to the yeah, sorry, I scared your cat there, to get back to the original um, uh, point, which was that. Whether I was sitting or whether I was eating or whether I was observing something, something um, a white uh, a whiteness uh, on the on my left side um, moved and uh, I um, acknowledged its presence as I had been doing um, at that point mm. and then instantly there was a an image of a of a, a face. Uh, on my left side as well, in my mind's eye, but it was wasn't looking straight at me. It was slightly off to the left, and it was uh, a, a large, round-faced, uh, flat, quite flat face, not pointy like a human okay. human uh, features, or you know, um, quite pointy. His nose was quite flat, okay. and um, I was seeing it almost in two dimensions, I guess, like a visual picture. But mm. I could see, I could see that there was eyes sunk back into its skull, large, flat forehead and um, um, a mouth and um, there was a, a neck and a chest um, but mostly I was seeing the face mm. and um, there was uh, that was all at that point so I acknowledged that picture and um, and sat and this I had my eyes open but I still hadn't turned to, to see anything because I had learned that that wasn't how I experienced yep. these creatures beings at 
tall. Um, so pretty much a feeling, and I certainly got a feeling. I, I think I remember, it's a long time ago, but I do remember a, a slightly raised heartbeat, I guess, mm. a level of excitement, because I had always um, hoped that I might actually encounter a, a nature spirit. Mm. But again, you have perceptions of it's going to be like the Tinker Bell or the little leprechaun with the hat and the beard or or um, an old man sitting on a mushroom or all of these um, <laughs> images that were fed from the Grimm's Brothers or... Uh, Disney. Myth Disney, yeah. <laughs> so, nonetheless, um, this creature um, was uh, intrigued by my... my um, intrigued. It was right up having a close look. I could approach you to, to let you feel the, mm. the inquisitiveness of this um, of this creature's um, energy. But um, I quickly became aware that it wasn't just uh, a humanoid. There was also some animal um, element to its its body as well. And at the time, I um, thought that it was a, a goat body um, from the visual image that I was getting my mind's eye, third eye image. Yep. Um, it looked like a goat's body but subsequently that turned out to be not a goat's body but um, at the time I just thought that that's what I was seeing a human, a human torso and arms um, but with very coarse hair and there was some horns as well and um, but small um, a small creature if I had stood up then I would it would have been maybe somewhere its horn tips might have been around my chest sort of height oh wow okay it's quite a small thing i was sitting yeah. down and its face was level with mine when i was sitting small because it was young or? well yes I, I did get a childlike energy from it at yeah. the time and but um that was just what i assumed was a kind of playfulness mm -hmm. you know because i once again thanks to disney and and then um, popular folklore there was usually a playfulness with with the um, creatures yeah. sometimes even a mischievousness which is often connected to children as well yeah so really at the time i was accepting that this was a a playful but friendly entity a small physically statured thing and um that was all that happened on that point um i uh and I don't remember if it was at that time or if it was later, at a later stage in the day or a week or a month later that I kept on visiting the image because that's something that I could do as well. I'd worked out is that I could hold the image in my mind and I could interact with that creature being. Oh. Um, just like I might be able to visualise my granny who's been dead for two decades and visualise her and uh, give her a, an emotional and mental hug. Mm. which is comforting to me only uh, um, not only me but I believe comforting to her um, yeah. her, her soul her spirit or yeah. whatever word you would like to use to, yeah. to, to um, label the the being which is past you're, you're enacting a connection so I could revisit this this creature and I, I hoped for a name I did hope for a name and I, um, I trusted myself when a name came to me and um, it's totally open to criticism and doubt, of course, because it's all happened in my mind. There's um, yeah, uh, a space free of criticism and doubt. <laughs> of course, you know, of yeah. course. And, and yeah. I, I am, I'm, I'm probably the first in the queue for self-criticism. Mm. And um, well, That's what I mean. In some ways, I think there's plenty of it about and um, uh, I, there's no need for me to add to it. <laughs> no, no, of course not. But um, yeah. but anyway, the name that was and I, I, I tried to I tried to write it down a couple of times or more than a couple of times to get some sort of definition on, but writing it down just didn't seem to look right. Um, okay. 
Anyway, so Gilaben, Gilaben, Gilabar, Gilaben. I mean, I tried multiple different times to try and mm. um, to to uh, define it with English uh, with the English alphabet, and um, I haven't been able to do that. Uh, and as a as a result of that, whenever I try to do a Google search, nothing comes up. But that might be mm. that might be um, because it uh, isn't English, you know. Gilabin um, is well, how I'm saying it. Well, there's there's nothing um, there's nothing emerged anyway. Um, but uh, I was happy with this um, with this encounter, and um, I um, at the time thought that the, the creature was uh, uh, an indigenous being, indigenous to to Scotland, yep. and maybe even particularly connected to a certain type of habitat in Scotland. For example, I might not encounter this creature on a rocky slope. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably encounter this creature being. Um, Gillibin in a, in a more forested environment where there'd be lots of vegetation and mm. annual decay and woodlands that you might see a grazing animal in um, a forest dwelling animal not an open pasture creature um, so that that was where I encountered this that's where I encountered him I'm going to say him because um, I felt that there was a, a, a maleness yeah. around it I don't know um, really for sure um, if this, uh, if if he was an aspect of myself, um, or uh, or what. I really, I really, I really can't know. I'm open to, I'm open to doubt. But yeah, at this point in my life, I'm accepting that I've seen a woodland creature, and um, and that he lives in this part of Scotland, and he's made himself uh, present to me, and I feel great. And that's kind of a full stop after that part. Mm. Um, I think that maybe um, some some human roots to our uh, ancestral past as as uh, communities have been severed, in in mm. in um, the ancient history three, four, five hundred years ago. I know that links to to indigenousness in in Scotland has been wiped out a long time ago by uh, subsequent burnings and uh, imprisonments and, and executions. And I think that maybe this is a sort of a form of rebirthing of of um, things that were pre- previously really well known, mm-hmm. and um, um, I'm comfortable with the the, the fledgling knowledge, um, and even the the, the reimagining of, of of what this what this might have been. Yeah. But I do I do I do believe and know that um, our my ancestors um, in the UK. As in, in all indigenous cultures would would have had a very very strong and definite um, um, understandings of of the natural world and mm-hmm. the energies within it, mm. and I believe that I encountered um, a, a, a nature spirit. Uh, it was a, a natural part of the landscape there, mm. um, and my mind interpreted it as this uh, uh, what I perceived at the time to be a goat. Mm. Being, but I've previously, subsequently, I'm using that word, but subsequently realised that it wasn't a goat. It's actually a, a young deer, a young red deer. Okay. Its body, um, its its hindquarters, its flanks, and its uh, front legs, um, being a, a red deer, definitely cloven hoofed, like a like a deer. Um, I believe that's the right word for it. I think there's another word. And there's maybe some deer enthusiasts around that know the exact word for a, a two-toed. Um, yeah. A two-toed, because um, cloven's more to do with horses, uh, cows, I think. But okay. 
sheep and, and goats and, and deer have that two-toed thing. Somebody will see it. Possibly. Anyway, um, but I can see its two-toedness and I can see its coarse, um, um, short hair, smooth, and its flanks. But in, the, in, my, in my first encounter, I only see its face and its four quarters. Okay. Um, but in a second vision that I had years, years later, I, I saw it from behind. Um, and I could see very clearly it's a, it's a red deer, strong. What was the context of that? What's the story? The second, yeah. the second dream. The second um, encounter was um, maybe even, it could be, I was with my children. My children weren't, hadn't even met their mum at this point um, in 2001. Or oh, I had met her, but we weren't together, sorry. Um, so we were had, had emigrated to Australia and had lived in Australia. And we were visiting a, a different part of the natural landscape in the south of Scotland. Uh-huh. From, on a from, on a holiday from the south of Australia, so from South Australia, visiting Scotland, and I visited one of my favourite places, um, one of these little woodland areas in the unfarmable parts of southern Scotland where yeah. the woods still remain. There was a swing, um, which I knew that my kids would love to, to visit. Um, so we went there, and um, we'd been there before on a a, a Scotland holiday. Okay. Um, with my kids, my daughter might have been like eight, maybe. So it could be, it could be as much as um, fifteen or eighteen years later, potentially. Um, it's a fair old chunk of time later, and we're visiting what we call the Glen, which is a, a small tributary of the main river in the, in this part of um, southern Scotland, part of the Tweed Valley, um, huge area of land which gets drained out into one arterial river. At, um, at um, the east coast at Berwick but uh, what we were visiting was a tiny tributary of a tiny tributary of the River Tweed oh, so really? right up right up the, the river system yeah. maybe 60-70 miles from, from, the, from the ocean tiny little fragment of natural woodland beautiful piece of um, countryside where there is deer we do see deer they're not red deer but um, roe deer and there's also badgers and foxes, squirrels, and stacks and stacks of birds and other small mammals um, mm-hmm. that live there. And um, so we were playing on the swing, on a swing, a rope swing. And um, there's an old pathway which uh, would have been an old, an old footpath which which um, would have been um, traversing from one side of the the glen to the other, and in in a community that's now gone. But um, the pathway has been overrun with um, vegetation and um, years of, of build-up of decay of uh, hummus from annual deciduous woodland. So the pathway is still there, but it's more like a more like a muddy slope than anything else. But the tree is high up on the edge of this pathway, so there's quite a, a, a low spot below the, the tree. So when you, you start off on the rope swing, you're up high on the old pathway, but when you swing out, you're actually quite high in the air over a, over a, a small drop down towards the river. Yeah. Very exciting. All the local kids would have built these swings over these areas. Yeah. And I'm sure they did it in Australia too. So we, my kids were playing on that swing, and I was back down... Um, maybe 20 or 30 meters from the swing taking photograph I think and uh, I um, suddenly become aware that uh, that this creature's there that um, Gilliburn has has uh, has appeared again how did you become aware 
Well, I'm not sure at the time. At the time, I don't remember um, uh, if I... What I saw, it wasn't a white flash in the corner of my eye at that point because, um, because I can't remember it. I was watching my children on the swing, but I think I felt it this time. Yeah. I think I felt it in the center of my center of my chest. Mm. I think that's how I how I remember it happening because the initial remember this is nearly twenty years later, so I had grown again. That's right. From my original way of experiencing things, I had. I'd accepted that way of experiencing things and probably moved on to a new way of experiencing things, which I don't necessarily need the visual stimulation mm. from the initial um, um, appearance of, of a being. This time I felt it in my, in my, in my chest. That's what I'm going to say, because I can't actually remember. Mm. But I do remember feeling extremely excited and happy okay. and, and delighted that he had chose to visit me again. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I, um, I can't actually remember if I physically saw him with my eyes on this occasion, but um, but he was interacting with the physical. His image, yeah, is now interacting with the physical landscape. With the physical, yeah, thing yeah. that was happening there. My children on the swing. And his body was walking um, away from me. I didn't see his face on this occasion. He showed me his uh, rump. Yeah. And he was walking away, but um, but in a kind of calm and slow, deliberate way, almost like I felt like I got goosebumps. Almost yeah. like I felt like he was content that I was in a safe place. Yeah. That I was uh, in charge of my um, self and my children's safety. Not just because of the swing, but I'm talking about the larger. Yeah. A larger parenting yeah. journey. Yeah. Like he had come for he'd come for a look. He made himself uh, um, apparent, mm. and that he had kind of as soon as I my first image, my only image of him is just this slow walking away where he's walking around the the, the edge of one of these enormous beech trees that the swing was um, tied from one of these beech trees on the way up this pathway, just sort of slowly, sort of in a circular movement walking away from me and I could see this is and it was at this point that um, I realised that it wasn't a goat that I was seeing oh okay because this is a mature he was mature this is something I didn't mention he was mature and strong bodied by this time he'd grown too strong muscles strong muscles on his flanks and this thick coarse hair smooth and sleek and uh, strong bodies and shoulders I don't even necessarily see his 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 shoulders and, and neck and head on this occasion, but um, my my consciousness is focused on on his flanks and mm. his and his back legs. Mm. That's the impressive part of, of him, and it's uh, at this point that I realise that uh, what I saw previously was was a, a him as a youth, and this is what made me potentially question um, that what I saw was. An aspect of myself, because uh-huh. if this was a nature entity that I had seen, and I'm still prepared to believe that it was, that's yeah. what I want to believe. Sure. That's what I actually think. But there's also a possibility that um, that uh, it's in in some kind of alignment with me in some way. Mm. That um, I don't know. There's a there's an aspect of of question there. They're both I, beautiful ideas, aren't they? they? And they could be yeah. both of them, Dan. Yeah. Both could be both could be true. They, that's you know? true. Yeah. I mean, I accept also the possibility that um, mm. my my 
spirit, my soul, is could be more than one thing at any given time. Yes, and um, and I might be this creature as well. Anyway, I realise at this point that um, that I've seen a mature version of Gilliban and that uh, that he is a, a red deer which would have been indigenous to that part of Scotland in the past, but deforestation and, and, um, and um, urbanisation and farming would have made the, the range of these creatures, uh, it would have, the range that these creatures need. Um, would so have there been, are red deer in Scotland? Yeah, they're still, yeah, they're there. managed, yeah. managed herds, uh-huh. but um, in the areas that they still exist, and breed and live naturally in these managed areas, there's large parts of unfarmable land, mountainous areas, huge areas of unfarmable land where it's too wet and cold and impractical for farming. So these deer still exist in those areas. But previously, in centuries gone past, there would have been red deer uh, Mm. in in the southern part of Scotland and in England, as as there are in other parts of Europe as well. That was an absorbing tale and lots to think about. One of the, the things I noticed early on was his method. And I, I guess what I mean by that is he, he seemed to really know how to apprehend or, or uh, respond to these kind of encounters. I think it started with him paying attention yeah. and observing when I've had these experiences, certain things have been... It's, it's been preceded by certain things, mm, mm. such as... And I think they're worth paying attention to. Um, he'd been walking for a long time. Um, he was sitting still in a very quiet place. Mm. Um, and I suppose the other thing is that he had... That he didn't turn, uh, quite consciously didn't turn and, um, and try and make the vision... Uh, very particular kind of vision. He didn't he l- address his really focused attention on it. Yeah. He let it stay in yes. the periphery. Yeah. He, d- he discovered that if he really turned to focus on it in a hard way, it would dissipate. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because that's kind of how you mm. respond to dreams. Mm, yes, very um, much so. If you, if you want to remember them, then... You've got to maintain that bit of, um, I, I don't know, a bit of attentional distance. Yeah. I'm sure there's a better word for it, but I don't know what it is. Mm. Yeah, what is that? Marginal things, interesting things happen on the margins. They do. Biologically, attentionally. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I've I've certainly some of the mm, my most interesting dreams have been in that space where I'm I've got enough consciousness to pay attention mm. um but not so much that not so much that your subconscious is pushed away yeah yeah and perhaps our own subconscious has a different way of paying attention and apprehending things as well as generating things well I'm fascinated by that because I know it to be true attention. yeah yeah um and <coughs> yeah I mean I, I think uh you you can't pin these butterflies to the board um 
it kills them. It kills them straight away, and they're not even there anymore. But, um, but I, uh, yeah, in my my experience, um, I know on a meditation retreat, I I remember once going for a break, and you know we had lunch or something, and I was aware of my unconscious meaning making parallel to my conscious meeting making. wow yeah and i was noticing it i was mm. going oh <laughs> <that's> mm. <laughs> um i don't remember what it was now it's all gone that would be an amazing skill to develop yeah oh my gosh now you've got me thinking yeah yeah no that's a good one and um keen on any sort of um, ideas around that I, I think the dadaists were really into this stuff and the surrealists um oh, i should know that but i can't remember yeah Anyway, th- I think they had methods. I don't know, uh, probably drugs or running into walls or I something. I don't think I'm it sure. would have been drugs with the Dadaists, but uh, m- maybe that's something we need to research and report back. Right. <coughs> um, so, yeah, he set up those conditions well and he obviously found a way to sit in that space and stay and actually have a kind of interaction without, um, you know, ruining it with this incredible being. Gilliban? Gilliban, mm. yeah. Now, when I say incredible, I'd, um, having kind of listened to a few of these kind of encounters and had one or two of my own, you don't necessarily find it incredible while it's happening. No, no. And culturally, there's a strong presence throughout many cultures of these yeah. liminal creatures or yeah. liminal beings. Mm. It's just in our recent Western hyper-rationalist society that we've pushed that even further to the margins. We've, we've right. pushed it as much as we possibly can kind of beyond our willing admission. Yeah, um, and I, I think that negates our capacity for the experience but also for our capacity to make meaning of the experiences with what we have. Mm-hmm. And I actually think, and this is another area of really strong interest for me, is um, is remembering or not remembering and the i i mean i'm convinced that most people have had extraordinary experiences and have chosen to either uh, re-describe them or not remember them mm. um <coughs> because they're not permissible culturally mm, mm. or they'll they'll be laughed at yeah they'll be laughed at mm. yeah and uh, quite and you know i think the introduction of uh, the, the kind of psychiatric model or the mm. pathologizing model of understanding mental states um, means that we're much more wary around those things than we might have been before that. Mm-hmm. Certainly uh, in my previous work in mental health, I often experience people starting to describe what to them were spiritual experiences yeah. and then uh, observing them or I felt this was what was happening, was I was observing them go, oh, hang on, I know how this is going to be interpreted and then yep. pu- pulling back from that yeah. elucidation of what they were experiencing. And <clears throat> when you say the pathologization of mental states, that's interesting to me because I, I think there are some mental states that are pathological, mm. you know, um, seriously damaging and harmful to the um, person and to others and, and serving no function, but there are so many other states outside of what we commonly would call everyday experiences that are that ca- can be rich in providing meaning and impetus and even explanation for things that people experience that 
don't necessarily need to be pathologized, mm. but we've got no um, we've got no kind of broadly acceptable discourse around those. No, I think the discourse is really crucial. Mm. Um, the, you know, in the cultural setting, the I guess the orientation that people might have to mentally responding in ways that are subsequently described as pathological, mm. the orientation itself, while uh, some often kicked off by traumatic events or that kind of thing, mm. um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be problematic. No, no. It's the kind of uh, symbolic and cultural and and social and economic, you know, language and setting within yes. um, it find within which that person finds themselves that I think determines how pathological that state might yeah, become. Yeah, and I, I think also um, <clears throat> another aspect of that is uh, how tightly held by the person and also by the people hearing uh, those discourses are. Yeah. You know, if, if people can hold their positions lightly and... Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, if, yeah. if I have a sort of really out there experience and I go out there banging on to everybody about how this is the truth... Yeah. Of course, in in that sense, I would say that's pathological because of course, yeah. what is truth when it t- comes to experiential things? You know, that's mm-hmm. a bit of a tricky thing to nail down. I, I personally think there's an extant reality, but once you're getting into people's experiential terrain mm. and experiential terrain generally, then it's a different ball game. So, yeah, and I, I think there's there's two kind of major historical and cultural discourses that complicate that for us. Yeah. Uh, I think you know <laughs> where I'm going with Hey, religion. Religion <laughs> and science. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and and so either it's, you know, real in in a way that's acceptable to science or um, it falls within what's acceptable to, you know, the the prevailing religious discourse and 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 when I say prevailing, because mm. I'm actually really specifically talking about the West. Okay, yep. Um, because, uh, you know, otherwise th- there's, a, I think, a whole bunch of other things to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the West, uh, we have had a very clear vision of what is and is not acceptable within our internal experience mm. as as it relates to the extraordinary or the others or the 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 spiritual or the other world how how that's got to be interpreted how do you want to describe it um (coughs) and the language we have is probably impoverished but Mm, mm. um you know and that's literally being reinforced through murder and torture yes centuries (laughs) one point i was going to make is when we were talking about pathology and uh, how if something exists outside of our certain current paradigm it's regarded as pathological what I wanted to say was, and yet we have this other paradigm, religion, and uh, you can have beliefs or thoughts or experiences that are extremely pathological. Yet often they're accepted because they're within the religious That's box. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and they could be pathological in the sense that they they're interfering with your functioning um, in From a particular other people's way. functioning if you're torturing them. Exactly. Yes. So, hey, <laughs> yeah, it's the work of who's God. Who's to decide what's functional? <laughs> I mean, the other thing to say about that, and, and we have gone on a major tangent, but it's been a good one. So, um, I, I suppose is the, I guess the idea that visions are extraordinary and ordained by God or sanctified through a hierarchy, as opposed to an ordinary everyday experience. 
and and I think when it's it's, it's an ordinary thing, I had a dream, um, or I had a vision, or and you know, as you say, the meaning around that is kind of interpreted, but somewhat loosely, or it's held held loosely so that we we can't be sure. You know, I think I, th- I feel like things are freeing up these days, obviously, but mm. in the past, you risk. You know, having to go through a grueling verification An inquisition, process, that's either right. by the church uh-huh. or possibly by the hospital. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the baggage in the background uh, with Eric's experience, and and, and it means, uh, I suppose that's why we go on these long tangents as well, because we're carrying this baggage around in in terms of how we have to uh, interpret the stories. The other aspect of that, that was, I guess, of that of interest from a cultural point of view um, was the link between Eric's vision and some some much older mythology within his own Celtic background. background. Oh, I, when you hear his story and he describes um, Gillibin as this dear, dear type of man with antlers, hearing that I immediately think of Kernunus, the antlered, God of the wild world of, or of the actual world, the natural world. I think that's it's really hard to get away from that one and uh, that type of appearance or being is experienced throughout other cultures as well in different ways. You know, mm. sort of think of Pan in the Hellenic cultures, the, mm. the, the God of the um, panic. Mm. And that's the notion of panic, sort of terror, terror in the face of... Of what I, I would call it, the bigger than the the self, something mm. much bigger than the self, the whole world that you're immersed in. Yeah, I'm sure people who are into Hellenic culture have got much more um, cons- sort of accreted conceptualizations of who Pan is and what Pan means. Mm. But uh, even in Australia, there's the Potbury, I think, is the name of the kangaroo man. Oh, okay. I don't know about the kangaroo man. I don't know much about him other than that. Mm. But he's uh, part man, part kangaroo. I think he's got a, a man head and perhaps torso, a kangaroo bottom, and uh, that's all I know. Yeah, the part man, part um, this beast or that beast. Mm. Um, the centaur. Yeah, we never stopped seeing them. Like mm. people, <laughs> I'm a keen listener of podcasts. <laughs> Mermaids. Of people that have um, been seeing these things mm. quite quite regularly. Um and not willingly often, you know, that it's the last thing they would want, but it just seems to spring. And do you think that's to do with our culture, that's the last thing they would want to see because it's so beyond the accepted norms of everyday cultural experience? Yeah, I think partly. Mm. Um, and, and I think the subse- subsequent um, experience of that is also, because often they're quite traumatised by it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <coughs> and, you know, it takes a lot of processing. Mm. Um mm. So that that could be it. I mean, it's uh, some of these experiences are very, um, very strange and and actually literally terrifying. But anyway, we're, we're going on a tangent again. Well, again, there's that notion of panic. Yeah. And oh, it's fascinating to me. I'm going to have to go back and ponder that as well. Yeah. Well, and look, the the other thing I've you know I've heard suggested in the, this context that is with beings from the other world is mm. that it's as relational as anything else. Mm. That is the way you go into it mm-hmm. and what, you know, might be read as your intention 
determines how that interaction goes down and then how you experience it subsequently. Or, or perhaps the lack of intention, as you're describing in some yeah, of these yeah. inc- incidents. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think I, I always go back to the, the this kind of idea of the dog on the beach that describes it for me at least. That is that, you know, if you're walking along the beach and there's a dog off the leash mm. um, and you you respond in fear and run away or you charge at it <laughs> either, either way um you know those are kind of those are going to determine how that interaction then um, yeah. plays out because <coughs> the dog will respond um and humans are the same I, I, I don't know why i just find it easier to start with a dog with this kind of description whereas if you're friendly you may or may not <laughs> find things are more inter- likely to go better they're much more likely to Go better, yeah, yeah. I thought what was interesting was the sense that um, Eric described of um, benevolent, that, that sense of benevolently being looked over by Gillibin. Mm, mm. You know, that Gillibin, in his apprehension, was a, a positive presence and interested in him and had good feeling towards him, which enabled, uh, I guess, Eric to sort of feel good as well about it. Yeah. And the beautiful incident of Gillibin reappearing all yeah. those years later, both transitional times or, or mm. pivotal perhaps in the second instance rather than transitional times and the second sense that um, things are going well, you're, you're well and safe and your family is good and mm. Uh, mm. I can comfortably leave you. Yeah, I love how th- there's a bunch of things coming together with that. That mm. is, there's a place that he's developed a relationship with. Yes. Because both encounters occurred more or less in the same place. In the same catchment he described. Yeah, yeah. right. So th- and <coughs> once again, the, the river uh, or a creek, mm. wa- water bodies are often really um, significant with this kind of thing. And then there's that whole kind of chronological thing, both in the sense of deep time of, mm. you know, the, the kind of mythological predecessors that, that bubble up this way or that and in this case it's Gilliban and and um the, the course of his life as well that he's, yeah. he's got this i think in the earliest instance he'd had a relationship break up and he was yeah seeking refuge from that emotional pain and contemplative time and space mm. Mm. one of the statements he made i can't remember where it was but he said at one point that my spirit or soul I think pondering you might know, be more than one thing. Might be more than one thing, and and you know that was kind of, I think, th- going through this process of trying to attribute, is it me or is it out there? Is it in my head or you know is it in the world? If it is me, then how could it be me? And actually, doesn't seem to be me. Yeah, it's an experience, and uh, we make meanings from experience. I think that's that stems from that. So sometimes you can't know. No, no, we don't, and <coughs> I just, I, I, um, I think it's always good to come back to that. I don't know, mm. um, but I, I do like to kind of wander down the road a bit, um, and I suppose with that particular, you know, before I, I come back and mm. and settle on not knowing, I suppose with that particular idea, I, I like how it, you know, kind of destabilizes this discrete sense of self that we think we have, mm. and. Mm. And offers this this idea that we're being and becoming in a way that is so much bigger 
than we're consciously aware of. Perhaps we're aspects of something larger. Yes. In the same way that Gilliban could be an aspect of Kernunus. Yeah. Or he could be, maybe Kernunus has different manifestations or cells. Maybe they have different names. Yeah. Maybe Kernunus is something, part of something larger as well. Yeah, part of this and part of that. We're all part of this, this kind of intersecting, mm. you know, ecosystemic matrix um, of interconnected. That's right. Stuffness. Stuffness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you look at, like, <laughs> I guess, it over the course of long time, um, the the little eruptions that look like discrete kind of beings actually um, are merging back into this and that. Part of patterns. Yeah. Patterns. It's plural. Patterns. Yeah. We're all just patterns. Yes, it's interesting, temporal and space-based patterns overlapping. One aspect that interested me was him talking about developing a relationship with this place and describing the different tributaries in the catchment of the Tweed and that sense that Gilliban was a emanation mm. or being of this place mm. that Eric had this relationship with in an ongoing way and it brought his children back to experience that place as mm. well and the sense that uh, you know he d- so deliberately describes these tributaries and for me I get the place of the, the sense of this catchment being a liminal space because it's a place where the water and the land and the air are all yep. very um, very much there in the same Place often the water's in the air, mm. often the land is saturated, and it's 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 a physically a liminal place. Yep. As well as he's having these liminal. No, it's a really good point. Things. So, in some ways, it you know there's echoes of what we were just talking about with that mixing of um, all that um, merging and emerging. Uh, between one thing and the next mm, and mm. Uh, that, you know, such that we could describe ourselves as tributaries in a way. Yes, tributaries of experience. And at one point I think he even says, uh, am I am I walking through the air or am I in the water? It being so mm. wet at times <laughs> there. Mm. Where Excellent. am I? Yeah. What is this experience? Yeah. Well... Lots to think about there or feel about, but we'll leave it there for the moment and we're going to come back for the next episode with uh, another story that Eric tells, equally fascinating but a bit shorter. Um, So we'll catch you then. Bye-bye.